Hebrews 3, 1-6 Jesus greater than Moses Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our Apostle and High Priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honour than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honour than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Good morning, good morning, good morning, brothers and sisters, and welcome once again to Grace Christian Church and the privilege that we have to be able to get into the Word together today. Now, look, I know you're probably sick and tired of me being on your devices or being the one speaking week in and week out, and you've probably heard or maybe even haven't heard some of the things that I've had the privilege to be able to share with you over the past few weeks. But praise God that over the next few weeks, we're going to have some guest speakers that are going to intermittently uh, present the word to us and to bless us as a body of believers. So one of the things that I have gained from preaching week in, week out, is that I, I have the privilege to not only spend time in the word, but to be able to, with the truths that God has revealed to me from the scriptures, to be able to build on those truths. And so prayerfully, God can take those truths in your life and with a little bit here and a little bit there, be able to chip away at all of our characters and all of our beings that we might be able to be, as the scriptures teach, conformed to the image of his son. And so because we can build on such things, last week we looked at the knowledge of God's presence, the knowledge of God's person, and the knowledge of God's uniqueness, as well as as led this morning, be reminded of his mercy and his love and his grace as we celebrated communion this morning, which seems appropriate then that as we look into the scriptures this morning to build upon the last few weeks of the greatness of our God and for us as his people in submission to our great God, it, it, it deemed, well, it sort of seems appropriate then that we look at how great the Lord Jesus is, the, the superiority of Christ, or as I like to put it in layman's terms, how Jesus is better than anything or anyone before, now, or will come after in our existence. How he truly is better than the greatest of riches. He's truly better than the acknowledgement of the most powerful people in the world. He is better than all such things because our fulfillment, our contentment, our satisfaction is only to be found in him and in him alone as our Lord. So you're going to join me in a word of prayer and then we'll delve into this passage today and see what the Lord has to share with us this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love and for your grace we thank you for the truths that are found within the pages of Scripture. And as we look at this passage now, we ask that by your Spirit, you will minister to each of our hearts and lead us into all truth as you have promised in your word. So we commit ourselves to you now. Please shape us. Please mold us. 
please reveal more of yourself to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The theme of the book of Hebrews is essentially that, that Jesus is better than. And it continues here in chapter 3, for after establishing Jesus' superiority over the angels in chapter 1, as well as the sovereign work and saving grace of Jesus Christ in chapter 2, comes these words that uh, exalt or position the Lord Jesus in a position of that of being better than Moses. Now, what's the big deal about Moses? Moses is one of the key figures in Judaism. He's one of the key figures in even the Christian faith. And so doing a little bit of uh, Googling and finding a little bit of information, this is a rabbi's son, so a Jewish rabbi's son, giving his definition, his, I guess you could say his layman's terms, on why Moses is so important in Judaism. We read this, quote, The Torah, which is the five first books of the Bible, the Torah, being the books of Moses, is the primary canonical text in Judaism. It is the very foundation of Jewish belief and practice. Moses is an important figure in Judaism because of his role in the transmission of the Torah from God to the Jewish people. It is the reason we refer to Moses as Rabenu, our teacher, because he was the first rabbi in the sense that all rabbis derive their authority or teaching from the instruction given to Moses and because he was the first to teach the contents of the Torah. Now remember, this is a letter to Hebrew Christians. And to a certain extent, even as Christians, there can be an adherence to this traditional view of the greatness of Moses, as great a man as he is. A man who, in Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, we read how he asks of God to reveal him his glory, which God responds, nobody can look on me and live. We see this man who had been entrusted the building of the Ark of the Covenant, where he is told that the Lord would meet and commune with him in Exodus 25, verse 22. And who we are told that the Lord would talk with face to face as a man does with his friend in Exodus 33, 11. Great points that, that look at how great Moses is and if you think about it, even the Lord Jesus himself on the Mount Transfiguration in Matthew 17, verse 2, Moses is one of the two people that meet with the Lord Jesus as he reveals his glory upon the Mount and talks with them. So Moses is a big deal. Moses is a hero of the faith, as mentioned in chapter 11, the heroes of faith of Hebrews. And his here is ascribed with his faithfulness to the commission that has been entrusted and appointed to him. I mean, you think about it. In Exodus chapter 20, in the presence of God upon the Mount Sinai, upon the great Mount Sinai, he is given the written word of God in the tablets of stone, his commands to take down to the people and represent it. He is told about how idols and altars are supposed to be handled within the Jewish faith, within Judaism. We read about Hebrew servants. We read about personal injuries. We read about property protection. We read about social responsibility, the laws of justice, the laws of the Sabbath. We read about 
the annual feasts that are to take place, that there are instructions about offerings, instructions about furniture, instructions about the tabernacle, instructions about the ark, instructions about how, how the, the furniture within the ark is supposed to be placed, told about cleansings, how the priesthood is supposed to wash themselves, supposed to, he, he's appointed or entrusted all of this information about how we as people are to are to, to connect with this great, this holy, this magnificent God. And all of this is entrusted to Moses. And you know what Moses does? He adheres to that, for want of a better word, religiously. He adheres to every small detail. He, adhe- he adheres to everything for the purpose of of wanting to know God. He asks of God, show me your ways that I might know you in Exodus 33 verse 13. So, so there's, this, there's this seriousness with which Moses takes what has been entrusted to him. Every instruction that God had given him, every, every direction that God had bestowed upon him, every, every measurement, every, every color, everything that God had said to Moses, this is what you must do in order for me to meet with you and for you to meet with me. And Moses does all of it to a T. Here we are told that Moses was faithful in everything that he did. As a man was faithful, so Moses was faithful in everything. In all of God's house, Moses is faithful. That's a big deal. And in this same verse, I am told that Jesus is superior to Moses. That Jesus is better than Moses. Because he stands far above and beyond Moses And this is evident as the writer of Hebrews presents the exaltation of our sovereign Christ. The exaltation of our sovereign Christ. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 3 to the first part of verse 6. And exaltation is all about lifting up. Exhortation is all about placing on high for all to see. It is the recognition of what they're capable of doing or, or what they have done. And this is what the writer of Hebrews does here. It's like the winner of a championship game, how the team picks up the coach and places them on their shoulders and walks around and says, this is the one that got us to where we needed to get and was able to deliver the goods by coaching us as a team. Essentially, the exhortation of, us, of our sovereign Christ is Jesus Christ being lifted up on our shoulders and saying, this is our God. This is who enabled us to be made right. This is the reason why we have forgiveness of sin. He is the reason why we have forgiveness of sin. He is the reason why we are made new creations in Jesus Christ. He is the reason why we are accepted in the beloved. He is the one that has written my name in the book of life. And this is an exaltation of the person of Christ. And we read of his greatness. As great a man as Moses was, I read here, Jesus has been found worthy in verse 3 of a great Greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. 
but Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house. This is a picture of Alberton House in Mount Albert, Auckland. It's a great house. It's an old house built around 1863. This house has 18 rooms. It was owned by a gentleman by the name, I can't remember his guy's name, Alberton, I'm assuming. Um, but my wife and I love this place. There's a couple of pictures inside as well. But this is actually an amazing, quite an amazing house. I mean, it's got a beautiful veranda. It's just, I had friends of mine that got married there as well. Now, what I really like about this house, as great as this house is, it always amazes me as the people back in the, in the, was that, the 19th century were able to build something like this. This was uh, where a lot of technology had not yet been created. A lot of the stuff that makes building for us easy. And so, it's, so as great as I look at it, what a great building, what it does is actually point to the skill and the abilities of the people who built the house. So as great as the building is, it points to an even greater mind or a greater mindset of the builder who is able to take some blueprints, take some designs, and then bring it into reality. So too, as we look here, of the person of Jesus Christ. See, as impressive as Moses is and what he was able to do, or more accurately, what God was able to do through him, what is even greater than that is the fact that all Moses did was point to the person of Jesus Christ, was to point to what was to come in the future. As verse 5 refers to, he bore witness to what God would be doing in the future through the person of Christ. It is why when Jesus was walking, the resurrected Lord was walking with the two men on the road to Emmaus, and when they go off to the side and he breaks bread and prays with them, etc., etc., but it says in verse 27 of Luke 24 that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, so beginning with the first five books in the Bible and looking at the prophets of Elijah and Jeremiah, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. What Jesus was able to do is go through the scriptures, to go through the Old Testament, and he plucked out and he brought out every single little picture found in the Old Testament, all of those things that pointed to him as the Savior, that pointed to him as their Messiah. The themes, say, of atonement through death, atonement for sin through the death of another. I mean, you look at Adam and Eve and you see that, that given when God was the one that provided them a covering. They created fig leaves to cover their wrongdoing. God had to kill an animal and in that death provide a covering where they wore animal skins after that. It had to be something that God provided for them. You read about the consequences of sin and deliverance from God's judgment when you look at Noah in Genesis chapter 6. And if you look at Noah and the ark and how the picture of the ark, how many doors were there into the ark? Just one. When, we, when the animals go in and all of Noah's family go in, we read how God shut the door. What is, well, what, it reminds me, what does Jesus refer to himself as in the Gospel of John? I am the gate. I am the door. If any man enters through me, he shall be saved. And so we have Jesus who's explaining the ark and how he is the ark, the door that leads to salvation. We see the imparting of God's law reflecting the holiness of God. Look at what we're looking at now, Exodus 20, when you have Moses taking the law and you see the holiness of God and how God basically says, it's not on your terms how you approach me, it's on my terms. 
Because anybody can come up with their own ideas on how to approach God. But what we think and what we say and how we believe we can earn salvation, God says, no, if you want to try it on your own efforts, this is what you must adhere to from the time you're born to the time you die. You must adhere to every single aspect of my perfection, of my law, of what my law portrays. We look at the establishing of the tabernacle. We look at the establishing of the sacrificial system pointing to God's requirements for offenses against him. We look at the Passover, what happens with the 10th plague and how there has to be blood put on the door so when the angel of death comes through, he passes over. That judgment passes over because they're covered by the blood. All such things that God used in Moses' lifetime, and even the lifetime of they were all set up to point to the person of Jesus Christ. Everything within the Old Testament are pointers to the person of Jesus Christ. They are the substance, sorry, they are the substance to the shadow. They are the, the theological term is, they are the, the types to the anti-type. They are, that points to the builder over the house itself, which gives the statement Jesus says to um, says in the New Testament when Jesus basically says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For I truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. That's Matthew 5, verse 17 and 18. So every act Every thought, every movement by the Lord Jesus from his birth, his life, even to his brutal death on the cross, not one aspect of what God required in his law was left unfulfilled. Jesus Christ met it all. He is the propitiation for, God, for our sins and he satisfied the wrath, the judgment and the price that God demanded for our sins. That's why he is better than Moses. That's why he is superior to and greater than all of these pictures that are revealed in the Old Testament. That's why he is greater than. He is the fulfillment. He, like I said, he is the substance of the shadows that were first mentioned in the Old Testament. I know I shared this illustration with you before, and I'll share it again, but I do really like the picture. This was actually given to me by Trevor McElwain at a time at Bible College. But he talks about how if his wife was away, and if his wife was away, he would, he would have a picture of, of, of her next to him on the bed and then uh, on the nightstand. And every night he would give the picture a kiss and say, good night, baby, I love you. Or good night, he wouldn't say, you wouldn't say baby, was, but you know, good night, love, I, I love you. And he would place it back down. And every night he would do that while his wife was away. Then his wife finally comes back. Now, if he was a man that sat there and kept on going, oh, he'd, look at his, he'd look at his picture again and he'd give the picture a kiss and say, good night, honey, I, I love you. While his wife was there, we'd think, that's idiotic. Why on earth would you want to do something like that when you've got the real thing right there? I don't want to refer to his wife as a thing. But it's true, if my wife had gone away and I'm still going over and kissing the picture, you think that is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. But that, that is exactly what the Lord Jesus has done for us. We have the picture in the Old Testament, the picture on the, on the nightstand next to the bed. That is everything in the Old Testament points to. 
It is the picture. It was the image. It's the, it is the type of what was to come. And then when Jesus comes, the real deal is right there. And yet the people of the Old Testament, not the people of the Old Testament, the people of like the religious leaders of the day, even today, are still looking at the picture when the real thing is right here. And as ridiculous as that, as that sounds, it means that they, they don't fully understand when the real thing has come, fully understand what it, ha- what it is or who it is that they have been given in the person of Jesus Christ. We have had our eyes opened by the grace of God, through the Spirit of God, by the Word of God, revealed to us the greatness of Jesus Christ. And yet we often, even as Christians, even as followers of Jesus, who is the real thing for us, still seem to follow, even follow, follow after other things that may promise something, but have no substance. And at best, at best, all they're able to give us is a slight, is a slight comfort, a temporary comfort that leaves us empty at the end. It's like, and I know I've done this, it's like when you've fallen into sin and you feel empty afterwards because you've tried to find a fulfillment in something we are not supposed to find our fulfillment in. That's the reason why we're left empty. And it's because we're, tr- we're leaving leaving the real deal off to the side. We're leaving our Lord off to the side, trying to follow after other things. But because the Lord Jesus is superior to all of this other stuff, it makes sense then for you and I to find our fulfillment in him, which means that not only, not only is there the, the exhortation of our sovereign Christ, but in that exhortation, we find for us an exhortation in our shared calling. An exhortation in our shared calling. If you look back at verse 1, I know I could have done this around the other way, I want to start it off. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 3, um, there's, a, there's a very cheesy movie. I haven't watched it in a long time. It's, uh, for those of you who do know this, I've never been a big fan of it. Uh, high School Musical. High School Musical. It's, uh, I don't know, it's one of those really schmaltzy, I don't know if that's the proper word, schmaltzy, cheesy type of music with really catchy tunes and you know, little dance numbers and all that sort of stuff. And one of the most famous sort of songs up there is uh, towards the end of the song where they talk about the support and help you get from each other as you go through that horrendous thing in life called high school. They have what's called, um, we're all in this together. We're all in this together. And we read in verse 1 this, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. From that one verse, there are five things I want to touch on very, very quickly. But it does all refer to our shared calling, the exhortation in our shared calling, because everything in this one sentence speaks to us about being all in this together. A point that the writer makes all throughout this letter. When you read the the Hebrews, the, the book of Hebrews, you'll find that he uses this inclusive term, us. He uses it around 32 times in the one letter, whether it be in verse 2 where it says, um, 
how in various times and in diverse places that in, in times past, the Lord spoke to us. He's now speaking to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We read in uh, chapter 2, verse 3, that it was confirmed to us, 4.11. Let us be careful, in verse 4, 4, 14, verse 4, let us hold firmly our profession. Or you've got the likes to say chapter 10, where it says, let us draw near, or let us hold unswervingly, or let us consider one another to, to spur onto love and to good works. We read us all the time that, that God had planned for us in chapter 11, verse 40. Or let us throw off every weight and the sin that so easily entangles us in chapter 12 and to run the race marked out for us. So there's this whole idea of inclusiveness that's about us as the body of believers, us about the family of God, us, about, as we looked at recently, the ecclesia, about the church. Therefore, with this inclusiveness that has been imparted to us from verse 1, we have these five things that point to our shared calling because of our exalted Christ. And the first of those things is that it is grounded in our shared motivation. Our shared motivation. We read, therefore. And our, that, that's how verse 1 begins, therefore. And it's connecting what he's about to say about our exalted Christ with what has. Because of what has been taught in the previous two chapters is because of this. And then he moves on into our exalted Christ. But we are reminded of today in communion, we are reminded of how he, through the cross, Broke the hold of the devil. If you look at chapter Hebrews chapter two, uh, chapter two, verse fourteen. <clears throat> Pardon me. Oh, here we are. Chapter two, verse fourteen. We read this. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death. He might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. So we see through the power of the cross, he broke the hold of the devil. And he freed the lives of those who were in slavery through fear of death. We read in verse 15 of that chapter, And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. It is the beautiful work of Jesus that we're responding to and that motivates us to walk worthy of the Lord. Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. And to walk worthy of the calling wherewith we have been called to. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. So that we can say with Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.14 that the love of Christ compels or the love of Christ motivates me because it is something that we are all in together. It is something we all do. We have this shared motivation because the love of God is what spurs us. The love of God that was demonstrated to us. The love of God that, that covers a multitude of sins. The love of God that calls you and I the sons and daughters of God. It is that shared motivation that is to motivate us, to compel us to follow and to serve. That is part of our shared calling. 
a shared motivation because it is something we're all in together. A shared motivation because it is linked with our shared belonging. We read, so therefore, holy brothers and sisters. That word holy means sanctified, means set apart. It means set apart. We are, because of what Christ has done for us and the love demonstrated to us in him, we are now motivated as his children. Holy brothers and sisters. We are like, I mean, look, everybody likes to be in the know. Everyone likes to be in the little group. Everyone wants to be like on the in crowd, okay? We are in God's terms, we are in the ultimate in crowd. We are set apart brothers and sisters in a time where people are looking for somewhere to call home. In a time where people are even just forming all these little factions. And remember what I shared about a little while ago, what uh, uh, Captain Booth said about how the church, the purpose of the church and the existence of the church is for its non-members. So our faction, our sanctification, our setting apart by the Lord Jesus is not so we form this little cluster and we're all happy and safe in our own little worlds, but rather that from here we go out. We go out and we show that love to others to bring them in to the folds. Okay? See, there was a time. There was a time that you and I were outside of Christ. We were strangers and foreigners to the commonwealth of Israel in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. And we, though, through faith in Christ, have been accepted in the beloved, Ephesians 1, 6, and being born again of a spirit are now his sons and his daughters. We are the sons and daughters of God. In Romans chapter 8, verse 16, we read this. It's, I really should memorize this verse. I'm pretty disappointed in myself that I haven't. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Or as we looked at a couple of weeks ago or a few weeks ago, we are, because we have the shared belonging, we are a part of his ecclesia. We are part of his gathering. We are part of his family. We are his church. And that is something that we're all in together. So we have the shared motivation because of Jesus Christ. And the shared motivation plays a part or can stem from the fact now that we are part of his family. We have this shared belonging. And as his people who are motivated and belong to the person of Jesus Christ, we also have a shared calling. A shared calling. We read, so we've got, therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling. And what a heavenly calling we have been given. We've been a shared calling to follow, a shared calling to serve, a shared calling to holiness, a shared calling to proclaim, a shared calling to love, to forgive, and to witness. And the kicker is this, the kicker is this, that shared calling that you and I have right now is the same 
shared calling that falls into line with every biblical character that has served God faithfully. It's the same shared calling that people in church history have placed upon their lives as well. And it's the same shared calling that when I look around, I see brothers and sisters who are faithfully serving God that has been placed in their lives as well as given to us. We have that same shared calling, the same calling that Elijah had or that Daniel had or that Paul and Peter had. The likes of church history, you have like a Robert Murray McShane or, or, or John Newton or the fact of like Pastor Ben or, or Martin Garcia. So they, what they have right now, you see the specifics may differ unique to each individual. The, the, the specifics may differ, but the shared calling is the same. I've said this so many times. It is the same calling, and that never changes, even though the context does. Martin, Martin Garcia, who, who, who looks after Word of Life Ministries, and he serves faithfully as director in the position that he has, and he fulfills that, 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 that calling in his life faithfully. When I, I look... And I see whether you're a prophet like Elijah or, or, or like Daniel as a child of the Lord Most High, the, in Old Testament times, that calling to follow and to serve is something they did faithfully. When I look at the likes of Peter and Paul as the Lord's disciples and how they encountered him as a disciple of Christ, the same call to holiness and to proclamation is just as applicable to me now now as it was to them in New Testament times. When I look at church history and I see the likes of, say, John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, or I look at Robert Murray McShane and I look at these men and I see how they, they fulfilled the call to, to witness and, and to, to testify, that calling placed on their lives to do that is the same, same calling to me now as it was to them in history. That same calling to, to stand strong and to walk faithfully and to, to represent and testify the greatness of who Jesus Christ in a person's life. When I look at Pastor Ben or I look at Martin, that same call that I see in their lives now is the same call that applies to me in my context also. That as a disciple of Christ, I am to partake of that shared calling even though I am in my unique context, meaning I am then to love as he loves, to forgive as he forgave, and to bear witness to his greatness in word and conduct. Something that we are all in together. Something that you can do regardless of the context that you might find yourself in. That that same call of of proclamation, of following, of discipleship, of witnessing, of holiness, of compassion, of forgiveness. All of those things, regardless of the context that you're in, is just applicable now to you right now as it was to the likes of our Old Testament saints, the likes of Elijah or Daniel, the likes of Peter or Paul, the likes of McShane or Newton, the likes of Pastor Ben or Martin, the likes of, of John O'Sear or, or, or Cass or, or, or Chris and John O or, or whoever it might be. Those things apply now because that is something we're all in together. And the reason why is because we also have a shared goal. So we have the shared motivation, therefore, 
connected with the, the shared belonging, holy brothers and sisters, that follows on to our shared calling, which speaks of how we share in this heavenly calling. And the reason why we share in this heavenly calling, because we all have a shared goal. We carry on reading in this verse, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. We are told in chapter 12, verse 1, that we're to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher or perfecter of our faith. We are told in Philippians 3.14 that we are to press toward the mark for the goal of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. We are told in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, that we are to set our affections on things above. All choices that are the outworking of a transformed heart and a renewed mind. For where I look, for where I press toward, for where I set my affections, practically are the results of what my thoughts are fixed on. On what we are told in Hebrew, sorry, in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. Meaning that as we fix our thoughts on Jesus, he takes the word and renews what we think about who we think about, our shared goal as a church, as brothers and sisters in Christ, are to have our fixed thoughts on the person of Christ. And when that takes place, our perspective on life changes. Our perspective on things we face changes. Our, our, our perspective on obstacles that stand in our way changes. It's the reason why Alan Redpath, Alan Redpath said this, We need men and women so possessed by the Spirit of God that can think his thoughts through our minds that he can plan his will through our actions. I'll read that again. We need men and women so possessed by the Spirit of God that God can think his thoughts through our minds and that he can plan his will through our actions. For when we choose to fix our thoughts upon Jesus, we find that we can cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bring into submission every thought to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. And when that happens, you'll find that we naturally will have our minds focused upon whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are noble, whatsoever things are right, whatsoever things are pure, lovely, admirable, whatsoever things are excellent and praiseworthy. For those are the things we are to have our minds on because those are the things that represent the beauty of the person of Jesus Christ. We have our eyes, or our thoughts, should I say, fixed on him. Then, then the of Christ shines forth in our actions naturally, something that we are all in together. The reality of such things that are taking place within our mind, so we have this shared motivation and shared belonging, this shared calling and a shared goal, which is manifest in our shared submission. We read at the end of verse 1, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest, which means recognizing who our Lord is, what our Lord has done, and what our Lord is doing. As our apostle, 
he sets the example of what it means to be a sent one because that's what an apostle means. It means a sent one with a specific message. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate sent one. He who shed his glory to take on human flesh and to bring the reality of God to the masses by contextualizing God in human form. And that people could not only relate to him, but also the fact that he could relate to that he relates to us. For we have not a high priest who doesn't know what it's like to be tempted, because he was tempted in every way that we were, and yet without sin. We are told that in Hebrews. And I think that is absolutely amazing when we remember of him becoming a man and, and granting us hope through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. Our shared submission to him as our high priest, who has not only made us acceptable to God, but also represents us to our heavenly father as our mediator and as our advocate who is ever to make intercession for us. A shared submission is about surrender. A shared submission. And I'm not, what I'm, when, I, when I say shared submission, I'm saying that we all have the same mindset that we are willing to surrender to him, to hand our lives over to him because it belongs to him. Our lives are his. And yet, and yet he gives us, he gives us the wonderful opportunity to find our wholeness of being in that surrender. We find our fulfillment in being obedient to his word. We find our fulfillment by, by proclaiming his message. We find our contentment in being satisfied in him. That as we surrender more of us, as, as John the Baptist said in John chapter 3, that, that he must increase and I must decrease. It is, it is in our decreasing, in our submission and his increasing that we find fulfillment in life because we become basically fulfilling the design for which God intended us to have. One of dependence, one of reliance, one of, one of complete submission to him. And, and we look, because when we look at, at, at this motivation, we look at this belonging, when we look at this calling, this goal and submission that we share in and to Jesus Christ, it points to the fact that we are, as it says in the second half of verse 6, that we are his house. We are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. That is, that is the, exalt, the exaltation of our Christ and the exaltation to, a, to our shared calling. That in itself is to, to stir our hearts. So if you, take, if you take nothing away from this, I want you to realize two very important things. That Jesus truly is better than. He's truly better than. Better than anything that this life promises. Better than anything that promises contentment. Better than anything that promises satisfaction. As I've shared before, there are temporary reprieves that, that we can look into. But all, in all honesty... The satisfaction, the contentment, and the fulfillment one finds in life comes only from him who is better than, him who is transcendent, him that stands above all things. And that, that there is nowhere else. It's in John chapter 6, when all the, all the people that followed Jesus after he fed them, and, he, and he's with his disciples, and then he says, when everybody leaves, will you also go? 
And Peter's answer is, is ideal because it is the same response that I pose to you now. Peter says, where will we go? And that's the same thing I want to pose to you this morning. And I think about it. Where else? Where else can you go? In all honesty, for the forgiveness of sin and the acceptance of God, where else can you go? Where else can you go? That's the first thing. Jesus is better than anything else. So where else is there? Where else can you go? And second thing I want you to remember is this, that we're in this together. The key word is we're in it together. We are called the body of Christ. We're not called the kneecap of Christ, not called the elbow of Christ. We're called the body of Christ. And the body best functions when everybody works together. And the key word here is together. We are the family of God. We are the spiritual house and we are the recipients of a shared call. But with the shared motivation of love and gratitude, because we have the shared belonging as brothers and sisters in Christ, having this shared goal and our shared submission to Him means this, that when we have this call to witness and this call to testify of God's greatness, it is not solely dependent on me as the pastor of this church. It is dependent upon us as the church. The responsibility to shine as a light is not solely dependent upon me. It is dependent upon us as his church. The unity of Grace Christian Church is not dependent solely upon me as a pastor. It is dependent upon us as the church. The effectiveness to serve, the, the willingness to serve, the, 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 the fact that you to put your hand up to do something for the glory and honor of God is not dependent upon me alone. It is dependent upon us as a church. It's us. We, we, we every man and woman within the church, a minister. Every man and every woman of the church, a missionary. Every man and woman of the church, a servant. Every man and woman of the church to stand up and to live holy and to shine as a light for the glory of God. It's not dependent upon one. It's on us as a church. Why do you think we are called the body of Christ? Why do you think we are called the family of God? Why do you think we are called the building, the temple of the living God? It's because it's us as a church. And that we have this opportunity to serve. The numerous times that we have read within Scripture the same principle that we are no longer living for ourselves, but to Him who loved us and gave Himself for us. And that is not solely dependent upon me, but on us as a church. And so if we are unwilling or if we are unable or unwilling to take the necessary steps in our lives to prioritize Jesus Christ, who is better than anything or anyone else, and exalt Him in our lives, then we will never experience the fullness of that calling God has given us. And that we will never fully experience the fullness of living a life as His child, of living a life as His church. So then, so then, sorry. Got a bit sort of hyped up there. But the reality is this. The reality is this. We have been granted a wonderful shared calling through Jesus Christ, who has delivered us from darkness and brought us to his marvelous light. A shared motivation. A shared motivation because he died for all of us as his church. And in, in, that, 
in that dying, in that sacrifice to make us his own, we now belong. We have this shared belonging. We are now part of the family of God. And in that family, we have a calling placed upon our lives, a calling to honor him, a calling to love him and to love others, a calling to shine as a light. And in that calling, we also have a shared goal to press toward that mark for the high calling of God in Christ. And we do this together. And in that shared goal, we find the, the way that that is fulfilled or the way we, we get to experience the fullness of that is in our shared submission to our Lord and to our Savior. Because when we do that, then we find that our focus is completely changed. We are no longer looking at us. We are looking at him. We are no longer while looking at him. We're looking at others and how we can best honor God and how we treat others. And in that, that shared calling we've given, we can also have the shared exhortation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's join. Let's just pray. And, and we'll, we'll leave these truths to stew within each of our minds and within each of our hearts. And that I encourage you that God will take it and do something in each of your lives as well as mine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we meditate upon the beautiful truths that are found within your scriptures, I ask that you will help us. Help us to live obediently. Help us to live submissively. Help us to live united as your people. I pray that you will stir within our hearts the desire to exalt you and to continue to exalt you as our sovereign creator as our sovereign God, and that with everything that you have done to bring us out of darkness and into your marvelous light, we'll respond accordingly. I pray that you will help us with the shared motivation, that that motivation will be that of love, not duty, but that of love, because you have loved us so greatly. That we would understand the true blessing and the gift that have been given to us as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, that the calling you have placed within each of our lives will be a calling that would be fulfilled as we seek to honour you and to live a life that is worthy of that call. And Lord, that as we, we look at, as we look at the, the goal that is set before us, may we, may we run that race with patience, looking unto you, the author and perfecter of our faith, and live lives in submission to your word, and to your spirit that he may reign, that we'll be controlled by the spirit and not, not drunk with the, the cares and affairs of this life. So we ask for you to dismiss us now. And Father, please help us. Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or imagine according to the power that works within us. And to you be glory in the church, both now and forever, even to the end of the, end of the age. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.